Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind, and I love my work, the opportunity to talk with remarkably enlightened people about things that really matter to all of us. And honestly, the most fun I have is when I hear from listeners I've never met, often from places I've never visited, who've been touched by our Humankind program. The grants we get from the funders you hear named on our program simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep the program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. This is about children, and the point is, are we willing to continue to punish people's kids? Because that's really what's happening here. The Problems and Futures of Kids with Incarcerated Parents. You're listening to a Humankind special, Children Left Behind. I'm David Freudberg. Entirely innocent in the eyes of the law, Millions of American children nonetheless find themselves caught up in the criminal justice system because their parents are. These are the kids who leave court in shock and in tears after a judge has handed down a long term in prison to their parent. They're the children who must make the often lengthy trek to an unfriendly building for an awkward conversation with their incarcerated father or mother. Chesa Boudin, both of whose parents were jailed in connection with murders when he was an infant, has written widely about visiting prison as a child. Being forced to say goodbye, to turn your back on a loved one, is never easy. The click of each steel gate resonates in my ears and deep within my gut. Sometimes it seems that all that separates us is the translucent ink stamped on my hand on the way in. But as I clear the final steel gate and walk through the 50-foot cement wall, while my dad undergoes the standard post-visit strip search, I cannot help but remember that there is a whole world separating us. This is San Quentin Prison, home to about 5,800 inmates, including every male on death row in California. Overlooking an exquisite view of San Francisco Bay, the prison is an atmosphere of armed guards and towers, rigid rules, and troubled individuals. San Quentin holds people convicted of parole violations, nonviolent drug offenses, and crimes as serious as murder. Outside, they leave behind families, including young children who have sometimes witnessed the terrifying scene of a sudden home invasion by police who haul off their father or mother in handcuffs. They say that it's as traumatizing as watching your parent be assaulted. Imani Davis in Oakland, California, advocates for young people with parents in prison. So it's incredibly traumatic. 
Um, and many children actually never get through it. I work with kids who are now 16, 17 years old. Their parents may have been arrested when they were four or five, and they still remember that. Um, it also impacts the way they see people in uniform, people in authority, but also just, I mean, kind of the helplessness and not knowing. You know, the way that our system works is they take them away, and nobody's really there answering the questions. So now, not only did this huge thing happen, and you don't know if your parents hurt, but you also now don't know where they are, and nobody's explaining to you this next process. And then they may tell them, oh, you'll see them tomorrow at court, and that may be three, four weeks. It may be a month. It may be two months before they see them. The recent fourfold increase in America's prison population, substantially due to nonviolent drug crimes, has dislocated the lives of millions of kids. About 1.5 million children currently have a parent in prison. To them, add kids with parents in jail, on probation, on parole, or on pretrial release. And the number totals more than 7 million, a staggering 10% of all children in America. In October 1981, Chesa Boudin, then 14 months old, was with a babysitter distant from the scene of a Brinks truck robbery near New York City that left three people dead, including two police officers. Both his parents, members of the Weather Underground protest movement, were convicted of participating in the murders. After serving 22 years, Chesa's mother, Kathy Boudin, was released in 2003 and his father remains behind bars in New York State. It's been a defining feature of my life, and as much as sometimes, you know, I have many, many aspects of my life that I enjoy that are totally unrelated to prison, it's something that's always there. My father is serving 75 years minimum, and to the extent which I want to maintain a relationship with him, I need to, that needs to be part of my reality. But it, it, it is something that you always carry with you, even when you've not yourself committed a crime. Despite the rocky start of his life, Chesa Boudin managed to mature and succeed academically, graduating from Yale and later studying at Oxford. He was raised by two friends of his parents. Yeah, I mean, you know, my, my own sense of myself is I'm his dad, and he's got two dads, and Bernadine's his mom and Kathy's his mom. So that's kind of how we talk about it. But sure, I'm his adoptive father. Bill Ayers is now a professor of education at the University of Illinois in Chicago. It was not so simple as just saying, oh, well, we have room for one more. Um, so surely Chesa brought with him um, a series of, of challenges. He was, I would say, looking back, I didn't have this language at the time, but I would say from the moment we got him, he was in shock and, and a kind of depression. Um, he'd lost his parents. He didn't know us from, from Adam. And suddenly um, he had to kind of reconstruct a whole life. So for a couple of years, he was what I would call a very low-keyed kid. When he came out of that, he came out with a vengeance, and he was a kid with tantrums, anger, fury, self-destruction. And that was the difficult challenge that we faced when he was about three or four. I had a, a really difficult time controlling my temper, um, pretty much right up until high school. But gradually, I, I improved my ability to control my temper. So when I was in third grade, it wasn't uncommon for me to have outbursts, which would involve cursing out my teachers or, or fellow students, throwing a chair or a desk at the wall, and running off crying. 
um, I think one of the things that indicates that it was closely related with my experience of um, having parents in prison is that those outbursts often tended to follow in the aftermath, closely in the aftermath of a visit with one of my parents. And so for some people, they would say, well, he shouldn't be visiting. Look, it's, it's so difficult for him. Ultimately, it was a necessary part of my ability to overcome those problems simply because one of the emotions that kids with parents in prison commonly experience is a feeling of rejection, a feeling of being unloved and unwanted. There's a feeling of, well, if I'd done something differently, maybe they wouldn't have risked losing me. One time, when I was about five or six years old, I was on the phone with my mother in prison, and the phone was one of the main ways we communicated because of the difficult logistical difficulties visiting. And after I got off the phone with her, I started crying, and my adopted mother rushed over to see what was wrong, and, and through my tears I cried out, if only I could have talked, if only I could have talked, I would have told her not to go. And clearly, just from those simple words I said to, to my mother, my adopted mother that is, um, I was indicating that I felt somehow responsible for my parents' crime. That again, maybe if I'd done something differently, or if I'd been more lovable, they wouldn't have done what they did. Um, and even, even the rational, the more rational side of, of kids, or even now as a young adult, even when you know, well, it's not that simple, and of course they love you, and so on, it, it helps if you can see it and if you can experience it. Um, and my parents, luckily, because of the extreme efforts that all of my extended family went to to make sure I was able to visit, have phone calls, receive letters, and really engage in building a relationship with my parents, biological parents, um, I was able to overcome those feelings of abandonment and rejection and build self-esteem in a way that allowed me to succeed academically and, and overcome my temper problems. He also had epilepsy, which we discovered very, very early um, because I, I'm a kid watcher and I noticed his eyes blinking in a weird way. and. So we took him to get tested, and sure enough, he had uh, petty mal. He was having petty mal seizures. And as I understand it, even those seizures are not uncommon among kids dealing with these kinds of problems? Well, the way that it was, it was explained to us was that the trauma of the loss that he suffered um, was the kind of uh, precipitating event, that he had a tendency towards it, but there was no certainty that he would develop it, but somehow the trauma of losing his parents um, brought this on. How about the, the temper? I think he was an angry and confused young child. I think that he was trying to understand from the earliest days what happened to him and um, where his home was, what was family, where was he safe. And these are fundamental uh, issues that are negotiated by all children. But for a child who suffers a loss like this, um, uh, yeah, it's not uncommon for depression and anger to be a, a big part of it. Um, my father was arrested when I was six years old, and I guess that was about 1985, maybe. Imani Davis in Oakland. Um, he actually was on the run, 10 most wanted list in the country for a year prior to his arrest. So to me, he left when I was five, but he actually was captured when I was six years old. Um, he was then sentenced to 107 years. Um, what was he accused of doing? He was accused of being involved in a felony murder case in which he was accused of breaking into a home in which there was a disagreement and the person, the owner of the home was killed. Uh, my father was never accused of being the shooter. He was not the shooter. 
Having grown up in New York City, Imani took many long trips to visit her father, who was imprisoned in North Carolina. She earned a degree in sociology and later moved to the Bay Area, where she's currently taking a break from intense work for an organization that serves children of prisoners. They're at higher risk for school problems, substance abuse, early pregnancy, and delinquency. She has informally counseled many dozens of kids who, like her, face some pretty tough emotional obstacles because of an incarcerated parent. Obviously, there's you have a huge fear of being left, and so you'll see that my brother more than me, but still, both of us, very afraid like that something would happen to my mom. They used to call my brother Velcro when he was little because he would like never detach himself from my mother's leg. And me, I just, you know, I was just incredibly anxious as a little girl, always kind of afraid. I, I used to overhear my grandmother talking to my mom a lot, like, I've never seen a child worry like this. Because I was like six, seven, eight years old, and if my mother was 20 minutes late, I was like on the phone, and where is she? Um, so there, I think that there's a kind of unrealistic fear of that that happens. Um, and you tie that to the fact that... Directly, because it started after that. I just wasn't that kind of kid, um, really. You know, very carefree, very safe, very secure, and it all shifted very quickly. I started acting out when I was about 12, like really acting out, drugs, alcohol, boyfriends, gang activity, um, and that went on for a while, a few years probably all the way through high school, the drugs all the way through college. Prison is no place for a child. But for the kids of incarcerated parents, it's the only setting where they can have face-to-face -face contact with their mother or father. Although family life has been severely disrupted by their parents' involvement in the criminal justice system, Mostly, the children love and miss their imprisoned parent, Chesa Boudin. Visits were, for the most part, extremely unpleasant, in spite of the fact that I really enjoyed seeing my dad and building a relationship with him in that context. Getting to the prison was always extremely difficult. Uh, even when I lived in New York City, before my adoptive family moved to Chicago, my dad's prison were in upstate New York. New York State's a relatively large state. Traveling even from New York City, let alone Chicago, to, say, Attica, New York, which is near Buffalo, is a long drive or a flight away. Um, as a five-year-old child, flying by myself was unpleasant. And my family, my adoptive family, as supportive as they were, were not always in a position to be able to fly, including for financial reasons, with me or accompany me on these visits. Um, often we relied on an extended network of friends, sometimes people who I didn't know, who would pick me up at the airport or at the bus station and drive me to the, to the visits at the prison. So that was the, 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 the sort of the first logistical part of it that made it unpleasant. Getting into the prison, I should say, was also unpleasant because of the process that a child has to go through, getting searched, um, getting, having to deal with people who are often not particularly nice, the guards. And going through security uh, as a young child, in some cases by yourself, can be extremely traumatic and unpleasant. Outside San Quentin Prison, visitors often pause to climb the stairs up to what's known as the House on the Hill, operated by a nonprofit organization called Center Force. There they learn some of the rules. For example, visitors may not wear blue jeans at San Quentin to avoid being confused with inmates, and they might have to change into approved clothing temporarily supplied by House on the Hill. 
Is this your first time at the prison? My first time, yes. Actually, uh, I'm very disappointed. My first time being here, they didn't tell us when we were approved for our visit. They didn't send us out no rules, no regulation. I didn't know. I'm not a person that visit prisons. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm very frustrated. Yes, I'm frustrated. Mm -hmm. There are rules about what kind of rain gear visitors can carry, rules about the maximum size of coin purses, the number of eyeglasses you can bring in, and so on. Prison officials assert there are valid security reasons, but visitors find some of the rules to be intrusive. Well, now y'all been standing around the courthouse, babe. Lord, no, when your day to give me my time. Lord, y'all been standing around the courthouse. Imani Davis. I think that no matter how anxiety-provoking the experience was, it was more upsetting because it made my mother so uncomfortable. And I think that for many kids, a lot of their anxiety is really coming from the anxiety that they're feeling off of their moms or, their, or whoever the caregiver is. So when you went, you were almost always accompanied by your mother? Always accompanied by my mother. Nobody else ever took us to visit until my brother and I were old enough to visit alone. And my mom was always like a basket case. And I think that... Um, and what do you mean when you say that? <laughs> um... We always got yelled at on the drive over to the prison in the morning because we weren't moving quickly enough or we were, you know, we were anxious. So she was trying to feed us, make sure she had all the quarters she needed, make sure that the plastic bag was right, make sure that we were wearing the right things, that we didn't have anything in our pockets. I mean, that she had her ID, that she had everything. There was just all of that, which everybody, every person who goes to visit has to deal with. And then you also know that... Um, you never really, you're never in control, and you never really know what the situation is that you're walking into. So if the officer's having a bad day, you might not get a visit. And my mom knew that she had driven nine hours. From New York. From New York with us to do this. Um, so I think she just always was very anxious. In the majority of the visiting room, and where I always had to spend time with my father during, during our regular day visits, is separated by long tables. And inmates are on one side and visitors are on the other. And the tables run from the floor all the way up. Um, you can't reach underneath and hold hands. Uh, and children, after they get to be a certain age, depending on the, on the prison again, can't sit on their, on their father's laps. They, they, very little, essentially, there's very little contact that's allowed because of the width of the table and because children have a hard time reaching over that distance. So you can sit there and have a conversation for hours on end, and that's the best you can do. And for a child of five or six years old, trying to sit in one place and have a conversation with officers, intimidating officers watching over you for six hours straight with somebody who doesn't even live with you anymore is an extremely difficult thing to do. It's, it's conditions that make building a relationship with your parents virtually impossible. Since I've moved to California, I only see my father twice a year if I'm lucky, every six months. Um, so I have to travel 3,000 miles to go see him. Plus, in, plus if I have to fly to New York and then drive, so then it's even more. Um, my mother has tried over and over to get me special visits so that my visit won't be terminated because I could only visit for one day. This was one visit in particular about seven months ago. And they told her that they don't do extended visits anymore. And she said, you know, my daughter moved across the country. She only will be able to visit him once, only for a day. You know, can you just... So she got all the way up to the superintendent who gave permission. When, we got, when I got there, the officers told me that they had no paperwork. And 
basically I spent the first 45 minutes of the visit crying because I was scared that they were going to terminate my visit. My father then, you know, continued to talk to the watch commander and different people and tried to whatever, but I think what hurt me the most was their total disregard for my upset, for the situation. It was like the papers are not in front of them, there's nothing they can do, they don't care. And they were so nasty. Like I was like I expected them to do more work, like my situation was actually important to them, like that was part of their job. And it would have cost them nothing. So what ultimately happened? Were you able to they negotiate? They that I could stay till one. And what ended up happening was it didn't get crowded, so they let me stay till three. It seems evident that children of incarcerated parents and some prison authorities can view the encounter between child and inmate from very different angles. For corrections officials, a top priority is, of course, maintaining strict standards of security, even if doing so may cause some inconvenience to loved ones who come to visit. For family members, the priority is to maintain some semblance of a relationship with the prisoner toward a time when he or she will be released and perhaps can rejoin the family and society. For Chesa Boudin, the rules governing prison visits can be overly rigid and humiliating. Given that inmates are strip searched before and after each visit, what's the problem with having them touch the microwave to make food, for example? I mean, just one little example. There's loads of examples like that. I mean, the same thing is true of money. It, you know, under, understandably, you don't want inmates in the prison to have currency, I suppose. You know, you don't want them to, to have money. But if they're getting strip searched before and after, what's the problem with them holding their child's money during the visit so that young children don't misplace the money or have to deal with the responsibility of carrying around um, $10 and quarters, which is what I had to do for the vending machines? Um, Another example would be on overnight visits, which they do have in some prisons, and which were a substantial part of my relationship with my father. They go to you know, extreme extents in searching our food and our clothing. And obviously, if somebody's trying to smuggle something in, in that circumstance, when you have loads of food, th there are ways people could do it, which is why they give strip, strip searches and body cavity searches to the inmates afterwards, which is why they have drug tests afterwards to make sure that people aren't violating those rules. Given that they have all those security precautions on the back end and that it's virtually impossible to guarantee people not smuggle drugs in when you're having families come in with suitcases and grocery bags, if you're going to have the program, which I think is, it's, there's very good reasons for having the program. It's, a, it's one of the best programs out there, and it's one of the few programs that's directly correlated with reducing recidivism rates. You're referring to the trailer to visits? The trailer visits, yeah, to the overnight. They call them family reunion program. We call them trailer visits. Um, and they only have those in a few states and within a few prisons in those states. Um, New York happens, luckily for me, happens to be one of them. Um, but again, in that case, humiliating the family members on the way into the visit by going through their stuff, their underwear, their clothes in front of all the other visitors, um, cutting up the butter before you go into the visit, disallowing yogurt because they say it's not hermetically sealed, even if it has the tinfoil seal on top. I mean, these are really little details, but if you go through them every time you have to visit, it, it, is, it is humiliating. And, um, and it's a humiliation that ultimately the visitors and the inmates share. And, and it drives a lot of families away, and a lot of kids especially, away from visiting. They just dislike the experience so much? As I said, the distance you have to travel, the, the, the hassle you have to go through, the humiliation, um, and even just seeing your parents in those circumstances, it, it, it takes a toll on the children. And that can further stress the relationship between parent and child. Apart from the irritations of visiting prison, 
Many children of inmates are feeling resentment over the chaotic conditions, the financial strain, and the social stigma that kids often face when parents are absent. Imani Davis. I think that people assume that there's a point where we don't love them or that we'd have to somehow get that back, that the crime happens and our families are torn apart and we're traumatized and then we have to learn to love them again. And that doesn't happen. There are points where you're angry at them, and there are many times where you resent them and the choices that they made, but you never stop loving them. And I think that how children kind of negotiate the separation of those two things, of not having what people say um, impact how they feel, is a struggle that we deal with forever. I know how people see my dad. Well, I wonder, will I ever get back home? How do you reconcile a child's natural love for his parents with the role your parents played in uh, several murders? How do you work that through? To, to be clear about my parents' role, not, as I said, neither one of them actually killed anybody. They were involved in a crime in which three people were killed. Neither one of them was armed, um, and certainly neither one of them intended for anybody to be killed. Um, nonetheless, they have a level of responsibility, having been involved in a crime, that put people's lives at risk. Um, and I think it's, some, it's something that um, both my parents have thought a lot about and talked to me a lot about. Um, it's something that ultimately is... Um, carried with them for the rest of their lives that they they will think about and deal with every day. As the child, um, it's perhaps equally complicated. Even though I didn't do anything, I didn't um, commit any crime, I was too young to even know what was going on when when the crime was committed. Um, That love, as you said, that love I feel with my parents is is problematized by my knowledge of the role they played in a a heinous crime. and ultimately, I think it, it teaches us a lesson which we can learn in, in many other areas of life, but it's a very important lesson, which is that people are multidimensional. People are not as simple and cannot be reduced to the worst thing they've ever done. All of us make mistakes, and none of us should be judged simply by those mistakes. It's not fair, it's not right, and it's inaccurate. That's a very, very powerful point. And so what is it that you felt ultimately a need to forgive them for? It's a process that... I continue to go through in individually with myself and with them as well, but I had to forgive them initially for abandoning me and for, for putting my life on the roller coaster that their crime did. The case revolved around a situation that, was, that happened about my older brother. So it was my father. My father walked very consciously into this situation, not knowing it was going to go the way that it did. Um, but no, he's never denied his involvement, nor his responsibility, um, nor his remorse about it. Um, When we were growing up, Father's Day was really hard, and I know that my father always reminded us that no matter how hard we thought our Father's Day was because he was there, that there was a family who would never have their father come home because of his actions. So he was very, he's very clear. When it comes down to it, I believe that the needs of the families of criminals and the needs of the families of victims of crimes are quite similar in most cases. Um, and, I, and, and this is not to suggest any level of moral equivalency or to even begin to compare the suffering that families go through on either side of this, of this what I would say is an artificial divide, political divide. It's not to compare them at all. It's simply to say that their needs are, are parallel. Um, children 
the, the, the many children who lost their fathers to my parents' crime grew up suffering from many of, many of the same kinds of problems that I faced and that, and that children with parents in prison generally face um, and which our current policies do nothing to address or remedy. So, for example, they grew up without the benefit of a father in their life and all that that comes along with emotionally, financially. Um, they grew up with the trauma of having lost a, a father to a violent crime. And I can only begin to imagine how difficult it must be emotionally. Um, in, in my case, I also lost my parents through no fault of my own. And that's something that we share. All of us, to one degree or another, again, my parents were not killed. But as in the case of my father, he was permanently taken away from me. And though I'm allowed to have a relationship with him, um, it is something that continues to be a burden on our family, financially and emotionally, the same as I imagine in, in the case of many of the children who lost it, have lost their parents to crime. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Special thanks to Rounder Records and the Alan Lomax Collection, Joellen Easton, Molly Peterson, and to Kathy Graham. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, part one of Children Left Behind, is Humankind program number 87. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.